When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Well, hello and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian and you're listening to episode 407 of Sustainable Minimalists. What do we do here? Well, this is a show about intentional and eco-friendly minimalist living. On today's show, we're discussing what my guest believes is the best way to protect our fundamental human right for a safe climate. Now, before we get there, we got to set it up. Let's remind ourselves of some recent movements that have captured America's attention lately. Two come to mind, Me Too and Black Lives Matter. Now, both movements had an impact. Absolutely. Me Too led to the firing, jailing, calling out of sexual predators. Black Lives Matter led to some policing reforms. And yet, Congress has not passed any major laws to reduce gender or racial inequality. And the reason why is because calling out injustice is simply not the same as fighting for it. Now, I have a theory. I believe we have been conditioned to overwork ourselves until we're exhausted. But the problem is we're working hard at all the wrong things. We're working hard at getting ahead and making a lot of money and accumulating a house full of stuff. And when we're overworked, we're exhausted and we certainly aren't in a fighting mood, are we? But on the off chance we do get fired up enough to fight, we have been conditioned also to accept defeat as inevitable. Political change, it's super hard. It often takes years. So when we come up against those setbacks, we fall like a house of cards. We throw up our hands and we say, this is the way things are. Too much gridlock. We roll over and we accept the status quo by and large. But you know who didn't just roll over and accept the status quo? You know who fought for environmental rights recently and won? 16 kids in Montana. And so today we're discussing the concept of green amendments, which is a grassroots fight by, of, and for the people that not only recognizes, but keyword protects our fundamental human right to a safe climate. My guest is attorney, author, and mother of the Green Amendments movement, Maya Van Rossum. Maya argues that every state must implement a Green Amendment into their Constitution's Bill of Rights, because when it's in the Bill of Rights section and when the language is strong enough, we, the people, get the most powerful protections, just like our freedom of speech, our freedom of religion, just as these rights get powerful protections. So Maya's going around the country, and slowly but surely, she is getting green amendments inactive, with New York State being her most recent success. 
The ultimate goal, of course, is to get a green amendment passed into our federal constitution's Bill of Rights. And guess what, folks? Listen up. She needs us. She needs you. And she needs me to fight. Maya, I am so honored, so thrilled to have you on the show. How are you? Oh, I'm well, thanks. And thanks for having me. I feel like the best lead up to talking about Green Amendments would be to first talk about the landmark ruling that came in from Montana earlier this summer, Held versus Montana. I've talked about the case and the ruling on the show before, but I'm speaking to an attorney. So I'm wondering if you can break it all down for all of us in layman's terms. Let's start there. So I think the the ruling, as you said, is critically important for environmental protection and addressing the climate crisis. And it's also critically important for demonstrating the power of having a constitutional Green Amendment. In Montana, there is a right of all people to a clean and healthful environment. A cornerstone claim of this legal challenge was that the government's prohibition on the consideration of the climate crisis that was resulting in the advancement of dirty fossil fuels and the release of so many climate changing emissions was resulting in a violation of the right of the 16 youth plaintiffs to a clean and healthful environment as protected by the Constitution. Over the course of the case and the trial, Evidence was brought forth and testimony was brought forth to make clear that there was this advancement of fossil fuels in the state, to make clear that the climate crisis is directly harming and impacting the youth plaintiffs as well as all Montanans, to make the case that a safe climate is part of a clean and healthful environment. But it all comes together in this very important point that the climate crisis is real, that it is directly impacting people, in this case, the youth plaintiffs, and that government action that prohibited meaningful efforts to address the climate crisis, but more importantly, on the flip side, doing things that was exacerbating and growing the climate crisis was resulting in this constitutional violation. Mm. Well, I learned from reading your book that there are only three states with high standards for environmental rights in their state constitutions. I believe there are Pennsylvania, New York, and Montana, which we're discussing. Was this victory, so the ruling in favor of these youths, was their victory due to the fact that Montana does indeed have a state constitution with a high standard for environmental rights. Would this verdict have come through if it was filed in, you know, a state without environmental rights explicitly written out in their constitution? So what I can tell you is there have actually been multiple lawsuits filed in other states trying to make this similar kind of claim in the context of that state, trying to make this claim that government action to exacerbate the climate crisis or government failure to address the climate crisis in a constitutional violation as described in different kinds of language that we see in different state constitution, language that does not meet my Green Amendment criteria. 
And the long and the short of it is that those cases at very early stages have been largely dismissed. So I think we can see real world, real time, what the benefit is of having a constitutional green amendment versus having different kind of language that doesn't accomplish very much elsewhere in a state's constitution. Hmm. So then what, in your opinion, could be the long-term legacy of this verdict? I know in Montana, things might change, maybe perhaps more fossil fuel projects will not be approved. However, what about other states? Will it inspire more climate lawsuits? And if so, will they go anywhere in states that don't have strong environmental rights protections? I think the bigger picture ramification in my mind from Held v. Montana is, um, one, it does make that point. A clean and healthful environment includes a safe climate. And for other state green amendments that use that similar language, that's going to be powerful precedent that could help a case advance in the state of New York. That's number one. Number two, it is confirming what I have long said, which is if we want the climate to be addressed, which of course we do, we have to be more explicit about it in our constitutional language. Let's not just use language like clean and healthful environment. Let's be clear clean water, clean air, safe climate, healthy environments. Let's specifically mention the climate so that we don't have to spend a week in court bringing forth witnesses to prove the point that a safe climate is part of a clean and healthful environment. So this is something that I've already been advocating for and advancing in the now 16 states where we have green amendments advancing, but it really just reaffirms the importance of doing it that way because sometimes people balk. At, do we really need to mention climate? It's going to raise political hackles. And then I explain why. Now I can point to the held case as, as further demonstration of why that's important. I think the other thing is for those states where a green amendment is not yet advancing or where people haven't heard about the concept, they're awakening to it and saying, wow, we want and need this too. And they're looking up green amendment and they're getting in touch with me. And we're going to be working to advance green amendments in those states. And for the 16 states where green amendments have already been proposed or are advancing, it's creating a lot of enthusiasm. You bring up an interesting point there that human rights are indeed environmental rights. But if that's true, then why aren't they already protected in our state and federal constitutions? Like, why weren't these environmental rights written in (laughs) at the dawn of all these constitutions? Because people weren't thinking about it right? They were certainly aware of the environment. And we can read books back in in colonial times where Ben Franklin is talking about contamination and pollution of the Delaware River and the Schuylkill River, two two rivers that I care for, of course, the Delaware directly, the Schuylkill as as its largest tributary. So they were certainly aware of the ravages of pollution and degradation, but I think it wasn't big enough or widespread. I really, I don't know. I don't want to get in the minds of, 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 of the people hundreds of years ago. We just know that they didn't feel the necessity to mention environmental rights in the federal constitution or in the various states and state constitutions. Now, that being said, in the late 60s and the early 70s, where we really had an environmental awakening in our nation, and we had the first Earth Day, and we had the passage of um, 
powerful federal laws like the National Environmental Policy Act and the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act. And we had similar laws being passed at the state level and a lot of activity was happening. We actually did see a lot of states, late 60s, early 70s, turning to their constitutions and actually putting language in the constitution about the need for environmental protection. And many of them, well over a dozen or two, recognizing or talking about environmental rights. But at that time, there were only two states, that was Pennsylvania and then Montana, Pennsylvania did it first, and then Montana, that actually recognized in the Bill of Rights section of their constitution, this right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment that gave it that same highest powerful constitutional recognition, protection, enforceability, and standing as other fundamental rights, like the right to free speech and freedom of religion. They're the only two states that did it at that highest level. Other states passed all kinds of language, but notably they did not put it in the Bill of Rights section of their constitutions. But for the most part, the language was lower down in the constitution, like in the miscellaneous section. They would say things like the people have a right to a clean and healthy environment, and that is the policy of the state. Under the law, policy is advice. It is not something that's actually enforceable. And they were putting good advice in the Constitution, but not something that was an entitlement of the people that the people could enforce. And so that's why we had a lot of language around that time that made no difference, except Pennsylvania and Montana did it the right way. Now, in those two states, it took several decades. Each of them have their own story. took several decades for this language to be used in a meaningful way. But once it started to get used, it really started to have powerful impacts with the held case being the most recent. I just want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying, Maya, because again, I've never taken a legal class in my life. But you mentioned in the book, the Clean Air Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, these are what you call legislative remedies. Are you saying they're not enough because they're just policies? Can you explain that more? Yeah. So the laws are not policies. The laws are laws and they're enforceable. And they do have lovely names like Clean Water Act and Clean Air Act and Safe Drinking Water Act. And in Pennsylvania, it's the Clean Streams Law, right? They all have lovely names. But the fact of the matter is the way these laws are written, they are not written in a way that's really focused on preventing pollution and degradation and harm first. They are actually written in a way that's designed to legalize environmental pollution and harm. Whatever state or federal law you're looking at, if you go to the right agency and you get the right reviews and you get the right permits and modify or limit or undertake your environmental pollution and degradation in a way that complies with the permit that you've secured, then it is perfectly legal for you to degrade the environment, sometimes in very significant and serious ways. Now, those permits do limit pollution. And so when these laws went into place and sort of pollution was out of control and was not being really regulated, the having a bunch of laws that limited how much pollution or how much degradation did bring things down and make things better. But then what started to happen was we started to get so many facilities all discharging pollution up to the legal limit that was allowed by law 
or we saw these laws not being enforced, or we saw these laws being modified. So it created loopholes. So industries no longer actually were regulated, like the fracking industry was exempted out of any protections. And so when you roll all of that together, this focus on permitting pollution and degradation and modifying how it can take place has resulted in the ongoing perpetuation of more and more pollution being heaped into our environment, into our bodies, more and more environmental damage as all the impacts of all these facilities and operations come together and accumulate. Like one grain of sands, 10 grains of sand in a pile, not so big, not a big deal but you start getting millions of grains of sand. It's a bigger, much bigger impact as you see these cum- the accumulation of harm or impact. That's what happens with the environment. And these laws were not equipped to address that because you could just keep issuing permits and issuing permits. Um, and of course, communities of color and indigenous communities and low-income communities became the places and the spaces where we really foisted most of this industrial operation. So What the Constitution does is it provides an overarching umbrella of guidance and obligation over all of these laws. And so while these laws continue to be utilized in the way they are written, when somebody can demonstrate that a law is passed, like we saw in Montana, that actually will directly result in a violation of the constitutional right to a clean, safe, and healthy environment, that law can be defeated. Or when we can show that these laws as written are resulting in so much pollution and harm that it's violating the environmental rights of the people, then we can turn to the constitution, we the people, because it's our right. It's not government's right. It's our right to clean water, clean air, safe climate, and healthy environments. We can go into court and say, look, what the government is doing and how it is doing it may comply with the law on the books, but it fails to protect my constitutional right. And so as that law is being implemented, must be struck down. Does that help? Yes, it definitely does. And I have a lot of questions swirling in my head. The first one, I'm not going to ask you now, we're going to take our sponsor break. But the first one is, how realistic is it to change... 47 state constitutions and one perhaps national constitution. That's my question. I'm going to ask you that after a quick sponsor break. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear 
better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back. Today I'm speaking with Maya Van Rossum. She is the mother of the Green Amendment movement. She's also an attorney. She's also an author. Her book is called The Green Amendment, The People's Fight for a Clean, Safe, and Healthy Environment. I know you are working at the state level, largely, and I'm going to ask how that's going, where my state falls. I live in Massachusetts. But let's talk about the U.S. Constitution quickly. I learned from your book that since the writing of the Bill of Rights over two centuries ago, the U.S. Constitution has been amended only 17 times. So if we're talking on the national scale, how realistic is it, in your opinion, to fight for and get a Green Amendment in our U.S. Constitution? So I think it's fundamentally important that we ultimately get a federal Green Amendment. In the United States, when it comes to environmental protection law, the states have a lot of power and state green amendments will help us address what's happening at the state level. But the federal government, the Congress, the president, the EPA, they all have a tremendous amount of power as well. And so if we want to check bad federal government action when it comes to the environment, we have to have a federal green amendment in place. But the truth is, in order to accomplish that, we have a lot of work to do. We have to get people educated about this concept, understanding why it's powerful and important. We have to get them organized so they're ready to rise up together and demand this constitutional Green Amendment and go through the federal constitutional amendment process, which is a very high high hurdle. And as you said, it's only been accomplished, I don't want to say a handful of times, but a couple of handfuls of times. But it has happened. It just takes a lot of work and the appropriate preparation to get there. And so the Green Amendment movement being focused at the state level, which I carefully have strategically designed it to to be focused on, is intended to allow us to do all of that work at the state level, get state Green Amendments passed so we get the power and benefit of their protection and implementation right away 
at the state level. But at the same time, we are creating all of that awareness and doing all of that organizing, grassroots organizing, that's going to be essential to ultimately get a federal green amendment. So it's it's a very connected strategic pathway that focuses on the states first, but does end up with the federal constitution because we need them both. One or the other isn't going to be good enough. I think 100%, absolutely, we're going to get a federal green amendment. It's just a matter of how we get there. And isn't it also a matter of when the clock is ticking. <laughs> I know you mentioned like it has happened and it takes a lot of work and a lot of organization and a lot of time. But from my opinion, it doesn't seem like time is on our side. Oh, you are so right. Time is not on our side. And as you said, for the federal amendment, it will take more time. But that's why we are starting at the state level. That's another reason for starting at the state level. Constitutional amendments at the state level actually happen with great regularity. In fact, you know, since the Dobbs um, decision with regards to reproductive health rights and abortion rights, we've already seen state constitutions get modified when amended pretty quickly. People rise up, they come together, they make a demand because the Constitution is the people's document. And when we do that in a smart way and a strategic way, we can accomplish constitutional amendments at the state level pretty quickly. And then we immediately get the powerful benefits of the Green Amendment at the state level, whether we're talking about water, air, climate, species, etc. I don't dispute that federal is going to take significantly more time. But what I will acknowledge is at the state level, we can do it much more quickly. And when we accomplish a Green Amendment at the state level, as the Hell case demonstrates, we can get powerful benefits. Now, that does not mean that we stop all other important work. While we go forth and advance the efforts to get state green amendments and ultimately a federal green amendment, we're still going to do all of that other important environmental protection work that we're doing. We are going to litigate. We are going to advocate. We are going to protest. We're going to get the passage of better and better environmental protection laws, even if they're not enough. More is better, right? So we're going to continue to do all of that other important work that does happen on a shorter timeline while we're also doing this irreplaceably important work of getting the constitutional protection that in some states does take longer, but it depends on the state. So how's it going? I know at the beginning of the conversation, I believe you mentioned 16 states where green amendments are in progress. Tell me all about your work and how it's going. So it's hard work everywhere. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but again, it's meaningful work and it's important work. And once we accomplish it, we get these benefits. And we're already seeing that in New York. So we did get a Green Amendment passed in New York. And like I said, it went into play in January 1 of 2022. And it's already being utilized to accomplish um, protections that the people before the amendment were unable to accomplish. In the other states, when I say 16 states, it means one of two things has happened or is happening. One is there's already proposed language. The language in every state is different. My criteria have to be achieved. And I have model language as a starting place for every state. But every state, the language is a little bit different in order to suit the personalities and the priorities of that state. And so that they really own it, right? But in, in 14 states, language has actually been proposed. There are an additional two states where the organizing is happening, and I'm anticipating 
language in the near term. And then there are a couple of other states that I don't count where people, I'm having conversations with people and we're starting to get to the place where I think we're going to start to see a movement take hold and grow in, in, in those states. Everywhere the process is different. It depends on the state's uh, legislative process, their language, and the unique personalities of that state. But I think that we've seen real powerful progress in New Mexico, in New Jersey, in Delaware, in Connecticut, where the amendment was just proposed about a year ago, and there's already powerful support that's building. We've got a great effort that's been advancing in Maine, in the state of Hawaii, where they have that other powerful language that I talked about, which is about protection of natural resources. There's also been a great effort to get this individual right to a clean and healthy environment in the Bill of Rights section of the state constitution. It has passed several times out of committee in both legislative houses. It just hasn't made it all the way through that process to go before the full legislature. But the fact that you see hearings happening and committees voting in support of green amendments in a number of states was a real demonstration of progress and shows that the movement and support are building. So it seems to me that grassroots organization is key here. I'm sure you're coming up against a lot of pushback. I mean, we have plenty of policymakers who deny that climate change is even real. And then you have the fossil fuels industry and their immense clout and money, right? So I'm assuming you're, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm assuming you're coming up against hurdles. The voice and the will of the people is much needed. So how can listeners who are hearing our conversation today join this grassroots movement in their state? You are 100% right. This is a movement by, of, and for the people. This is a genuine grassroots movement that that is being led by the people. And then in some states, we have some really powerful legislative champions that are joining the effort and helping to really make a difference. But it, it all depends on powerful voices coming together. I don't mean the voices of the people have to be powerful, right? All the people lifting up their voice coming together creates a powerhouse of progress that's critically important for advancing a Green Amendment. So if state, if people want to get involved with the movement, the organizations, Green Amendments for the Generations, so it's for the generations.org to stress that generational component of a Green Amendment. When you go to that website, you can see all of the information about what a Green Amendment is and how it works. And there are ways to get involved writ large. But you'll also find a tab that says active states. And for every active state, we've created a special Green Amendment website just for that state. Or if it's in the beginning stages, there's a special state page on the national website. And we also actually have a new Green Amendment Action app. And that we're trying to grow because that can become a really dynamic place for people to learn, get the most updated information, and also share their own ideas directly, real time, with others who are involved in the Green Amendment movement, including myself. It sounds like you've done a lot of work. Your team's done a lot of work to make it easy for just somebody ordinary like me to help out what would that look like? Is it as simple as getting on the email list, calling my representatives? Like, What is the thing that somebody like me could do to help? It's going to be different for every state. I'm just going to have to keep saying that. But the common things that people can do in every state, yes, 
join Green Amendments for the Generations. You will get on our email list. We send out action alerts. We send out monthly newsletters. And in those newsletters, we highlight what's happening in the different states and in the movement. So that's easy. You can join, of course, making a donation of support, which is critically important. But you can also join for free. You don't have to pay to have a voice in the Green Amendment movement. For the national page and all the state's pages, there's always a petition to be signed. And we use those petitions strategically at the right moment. And then we really encourage people to, yes, call your legislators or when there are Green Amendment meetings within your state, they will be advertised on the website. You can join those meetings and learn real time. Sometimes those meetings are educational. Sometimes they're about strategy. Uh, Letters to the editor that just starts to start to spread the word about the the value of having a green amendment. You don't have to be a lawyer to understand why a green amendment is valuable. As you said at the top of the hour, you're not a lawyer, but on the other hand, you understand clean water is a human right. Clean air is a human right. We all know in our hearts and our minds, this is an entitlement that belongs to the people and government should not be allowed to take it away from us. And so speaking powerfully and passionately about that through a letter to the editor or to your legislator is another really valuable way to contribute to the movement. If you're in a state where there isn't a Green Amendment yet, go to your legislator. Have you heard about this idea? I want you to propose a Green Amendment in my state. Get in touch with that that Green Amendment lady, Maya Van Rossum, and let's work together to propose language. Well, I will link to ForTheGenerations.org into our episode's show notes. But listeners, ForTheGenerations.org, go take five minutes and join us. Before we say goodbye, one more question. I'm from Massachusetts. Is there a Green Amendment proposed? No Green Amendment proposed yet in Massachusetts. I've been invited to speak there a couple of times. The Boston Globe has had me do some writings, but nobody yet has stepped forward. I have a rule. I can, I always say this is my joke, and it, it, joke's probably getting tired to people who've already heard me speak. But my joke is that I'm like a vampire. You know how a vampire can't come into your house unless they're invited in? For me, in terms of Green Amendments in a state, I can go and talk to your state about this idea and try to inspire you, share the book, do things like that. But I won't actually come in and start to advocate for a Green Amendment unless the people of that state are in the lead of making it happen. And I'm a partner with the people of that state. So if you want a Green Amendment in Massachusetts, an individual or an organization or a legislator has to step up, raise their hand and say, hey, let's work together to make this happen. And then we can get one proposed in Massachusetts. Okay, Vampire Maya, I'm inviting you in to my house. Let's do it. (laughs) We'll talk offline. But thank you so much for your time. I really have loved every second of talking to you. Thank you. Thank you for helping to spread the word. That's the way we're going to make it happen. I really appreciate it. Listeners, that's a wrap. Show notes are at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 407. I have further reading. I have for the generations. I have everything you need in this week's show notes to get started as you join the fight, the fight of our lifetime, in my humble opinion. Now, on Thursday, I always like to give you a little preview as to what's coming up this week. On Thursday, I feel personally as though we've talked an awful lot about the climate and environmental issues recently on the show. So on Thursday, we're pivoting and we're just talking about how to live a good life. I'm giving you cheat codes for life. It's an intentional living show. I am feeling stressed isn't the word. I'm always stressed. So that's nothing new. I'm not feeling stressed. I'm just feeling 
weighed down by the environmental fight. So I need to pivot. I need to refresh with a show about cheat codes for living a good life. I will see you on Thursday where we're going to do that. Reach out if you need me. I so hope you learned something today and take care.